Welcome back to this month's Ecosonography Reading Group session. This month took place in Mianjin, Brisbane, Australia on November 23rd, 2021, and we invited guest lighting and sound designers for live performance to discuss themes of reflection and growth in our selected plays for our discussion. We hope that you enjoy. Hadithi, Hadithi. When I say Hadithi, Hadithi, you say Hadithi and Jo. Hadithi, Hadithi, story, story. Hadithi and Jo, story come. This is how we call for stories. And as your storyteller, I need your help calling for the story. Will you help? Yes. Hadithi, Hadithi. As most stories do, this one starts a long, long, long time ago. But we will catch it on a December day in 2018, Kampala, Uganda. On that day, a 22-year-old young woman named Vanessa Nakate was feeling very, very, very hot. So hot that she... Vanessa Nakate was feeling very, very, very hot. So hot that she... Her story is not coming. Hadithi, Hadithi. Hadithi, joke. Wait, this story will not come unless we listen to Vanessa's words. I asked my uncle to tell me how hot it was 20 years earlier. He told me he thought it was hotter, much hotter now. It was hot. The kind where you sweat from places you didn't even know you could sweat from. And it wasn't just the heat. Let's listen to what Vanessa had to say. It's quite dangerous to walk when it has just finished raining because you never know where you could fall in a ditch filled with water. Vanessa was curious. Climate change really caught my eye because in school, it is taught as something that we don't have to worry about, something that is coming in the far future. I decided to read more. That is how I found out about the Fridays for Future Climate Strikes. Vanessa prepared her placard and stood outside the Ugandan parliament on strike by herself for hours. Seeing millions of young people from different parts of the whole world doing these climate strikes was very inspiring for me because I knew that I wasn't alone. She went back the next Friday and the next and the next. By then she was no longer standing by herself. At first, I thought I was fighting to save a tree. Then I thought I was fighting to save a rainforest. Now I realize I am fighting for humanity. Hadithi, Hadithi. Hadithi, no. Then, locust invasion in East Africa is threatening the availability of food. They have come after the torrential, torrential rains. How can we achieve zero hunger if climate change is leaving millions of people with nothing to eat? We are going to see disaster after disaster, challenge after challenge, suffering after suffering, if nothing is done about this. 
Vanessa Nakate had something to say. There was the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos, Switzerland in January, where myself and other climate activists took the personal decision to sleep in tents as a statement to global leaders and governments. We wanted leaders to know that they have to make uncomfortable decisions like giving up on the fossil fuel industry. The people and planet must come first. Vanessa was one of five climate activists on the Davos stage speaking. But in the photo that came out after, there were only four, all European, all white. You didn't just erase a photo, you erased a continent. But Vanessa Nakate refuses to be silenced. Hadithi, hadithi. Hadithi, Listen to Vanessa Nakate. Historically, Africa has only contributed 3% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Countries in the global south are suffering the most as a result of climate change, but have contributed the least. And yet money still pours in from abroad to fund the burning of fossil fuels in Africa. Breaking news, we cannot eat coal or drink oil. Hadithi, Hadithi. Hadithi and Job. Listen. To truly understand this problem, we must listen to the voices of those suffering, both around the world and at home. Everyone must be involved in the process. We can only do something. We can, re we can rewrite the story. Hadithi, Hadithi. You want to know how? Listen to Vanessa Nakate. Young women are the light this world needs right now. Young women are the solution the world needs right now. There is power in our voices. There is power in our activism. Listen to Vanessa Nakate. Hello everyone, and welcome to the third Ecostenography Reading Group. My name is Tessa Rickson, and it's my privilege to welcome you to uh, Queensland University of Technology, where we're hosting this reading group today, and acknowledge that QUT acknowledges the traditional owners of the land where we now stand, the Yagara and the Turrbal people, and we pay our respects to their elders, laws, customs, and creation spirits. And I just want to um, thank Tessa and the wonderful reading that we've just had, which I'll mention in a moment. Uh, just crossing now over to Ian for your acknowledgement. Uh, those of us coming from Toronto or nearby or, or centered around York uh, University um, are here in an area uh, known as Tuckeranto or Toronto, which has uh, traditionally been taken care of by the Anishinaabe of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the Huron-Wendat and the Métis, as now home to many indigenous peoples. Uh, and we acknowledge the current treaty holders, the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. Uh, this territory is subject to the Dish With One Spoon uh, Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement to peaceably share and care for the Great Lakes region. And I want to acknowledge also that all of our uh, relations across Turtle Island, not just here, in the upper Northeast. Great, thanks Ian and Tessa. And um, welcome everybody to the third Ecosonography Reading Group. Really excited to have you here today, both a live audience and an online one. And um, we are here live from Brisbane, Australia. 
I want to thank Miguel, Susan and Aisha um, and the audience um, that contributed to the reading of Listen to Vanessa Nakate, uh, including uh, Auslan Sign Language Interpretation uh, from co-founder and director of Auslan Stage Left, Susan Emerson. Thank you very much for that reading. Um, that is that that play reading was also part of our last ecosonography reading group in October and it's been a delight to see that performed in a reading. So just to give you a little bit more overview about the Ecosonography Reading Group, this is a new platform for theatre makers who are interested in exploring a variety of articles, books, plays and stories that forefront ecological ways of knowing. Each session will focus on a specific set of readings with special guests that help generate dialogue and discussion. And before we get started, I want to thank a whole bunch of organisations that have made this initiative possible. The Prague Quadrennial of Performance Design and Space, of which we are a PQ Knowledge Exchange Platform Partner, the Centre for Sustainable Practice in the Arts, the Arctic Cycles Climate Change Theatre Action Project, World Stage Design 2020-22, Trigger Creative, Griffith University Australia, Queensland University of Technology, Australia, York University, Canada. And I want to thank my colleagues, Ian Garrett, Tessa Rickson and Alex Lord for all their hard work behind the scenes, as well as Monique Roy and Josephine Reed, who's done the beautiful stage design. And Monique has been a key part of the curation and production behind this event. So thank you everybody for making this possible. So I want to introduce our guest speakers for this month's session. Um, we have an incredible panel for you. So first we have Ian Garrett who is no stranger to this initiative. He's a designer, product producer, educator, and researcher in the field of sustainability in the arts and culture based in Toronto, Canada. He is Associate Professor for Ecological Design for Performance at York University. He is the Director of the Centre for Sustainable Practice in the Arts and producer for Toaster Lab, a mixed reality performance collective. He maintains a design practice focused on ecology, accessible technologies, and sonography. So thanks, Ian, for joining us today. And you're going to hear a bit more from Ian in a moment. Next, we have Bronwyn Pringle, who is a lighting designer and theatre maker based in Melbourne, Australia, who has worked um, in a plethora of performance practices, including, and spaces, including London Nightclub, a warehouse in Buenos Aires, the Federation Square, air conditioning ducts, and a wool shed. Bronwyn has received multiple Green Room Awards, including a 2020 award for technical achievement and holds a master's in design for performance from the University of Melbourne. Thanks Bronwyn for joining us today as well. We're super excited to have you. And finally joining us um, as well online is Tony Brumpton, who is an Australian-based artist and academic, and he's working in the field of oral sonography. And he likes the sound of birds more than planes, and I agree with you there. So thanks, Tony, um, for joining us as well. So Ian, Bronwyn and Tony will help guide the discussion that will explore ecosonography responses to the three plays that we will read. And we're going to particularly focus on lighting and sound this month and how we can use lighting and sound to create unique, provocative and sustainable uh, spatial experiences that forefront ecological issues on a local and global scale. We've also got four amazing actors joining us both in situ and online. So I wanna welcome the actors, um, Miguel Usaris, Shari Indriani, Jason Clawine, Afsena uh, Tarabi and Aisha Leslie Bentham, who are all here joining us today to make these stories come alive. So just a bit about our actors. Um, Miguel Usaris um, was also um, 
somebody who's joined us before and he's um, got a bachelor. He is currently a bachelor of fine arts in acting first year student at QT. And he's joining us in situ um, and you were um, blessed to have him um, perform um, the teller for listening to Vanessa Nakate. Shari Indriani is an Australian artist with an Ind Indonesian New Zealand heritage whose practice spans writing, performing and directing for the stage. And she's currently Queensland Theatre's producer of new work. Jason Clarwine is a Brisbane-based actor, director, producer and artistic director of theatre company Grin and Tonic with national and international recognition. Afsena Torabi or Afi is a Melbourne-based performer and collaborator working across theatre, live art and installation. Her work is sensory-led and explores the intersection of myth, ecology and the body. Aisha Leslie Bentham is an internationally trained artist, scholar, creator and speaker from Toronto, Ontario and has earned a BFA honours acting degree with a minor in women and Dys dysphoria studies from the University of Windsor and has completed her MA in theatre and performance at York University. So we've got an amazing team um, here with you today. So to our, to our plays, there are three incredible and thought-provoking texts from the Climate Change Theatre Action playlist. And these are Whistler by Gian Carlo Abram, Molong from Damon Shao, and The Sky is Clear by Dylan Thomas Elwood. And we chose these texts as they address the central themes of growth and reflection, which we thought would be a great perspective to delve into with our guest lighting and sound designers in our reading group series. And before we get started, I'd like to invite Ian to tell us a bit more about the Centre for Sustainable Practice and their involvement with the Eco Design Charette and Climate Change Theatre Action Project. Thanks, Ian. Thank you, Tanya. Um, the CSPA was, uh, we originally uh, started in 2008 and the, the first time, or at least the first time we used the name, uh, when the initiative was, uh, when we began, uh, the goal was to actually take a number of different initiatives that have been already in operation, working at different ways of enhancing sustainability across different uh, forms of arts infrastructure, supporting artists and arts organizations on uh, pursuing uh, sustainable approaches to the way that they make art and how that would influence the art that they would make uh, uh, starting at that time. Uh, we've evolved uh, since then, uh, now 13 years uh, later, having uh, often said that the most sustainable thing that we've done has been to continue uh, working. Our work uh, began primarily in uh, Los Angeles, California, but has uh, grown beyond that to uh, span the globe. Um, we view sustainability as the intersection of environmental balance, social equity, and economic uh, stability, and are working towards a strength and cultural infrastructure that sees itself evolved out of the principles of the Brundtland Report, the 92 uh, Rio Earth Summit, uh, and aligned with Agenda 21 for culture as a resource to artists and arts organizations. Um, our activities are, are many and have evolved over time. We primarily produce uh, uh, pursue uh, research uh, initiatives, positioning arts and cultures as a driver of sustainable society. And our work with the CCTA hasn't been that different. In addition to that, just to mention uh, a couple of the other things that we work uh, we work towards, uh, we have a, a web platform uh, where we're trying to share at least one sustainable approach uh, to art making a day with a number of our partners. We put out a quarterly print publication 
application, which is also available electronically, uh, with a number of special reports, including the anthologies that come out after each of the CCTA uh, projects happens in partnership with the Arctic Cycle. And uh, right now we're doing uh, prim uh, the bulk of our work outside of the CCTA, which is a longer term ongoing project, has been around bringing a um, an environmental assessment uh, toolkit uh, to uh, Canada with a lot of consultation uh, that's looking to launch in early uh, 2022, which we've been working with our Department of Heritage and the Canada Council for the Arts in preparing uh, to help towards a green transition within the cultural sector here uh, in Canada. The CCTA, though, was started in 2015. At the time, the CSBA wasn't necessarily a partner with it, but it was with our close collaborator who uh, I know Tanya knows really well, um, uh, uh, Chantal Bilodeau, uh, a playwright who has been working on a cycle of plays re, uh, about uh, climate change uh, called the Arctic Cycle, which is also now the name of her organization. The reason for it to be created was that um, th there was, people were claiming that there just wasn't enough work to be made, um, enough uh, dramatic literature around climate change. And so what better way to do that than to start commissioning it? So starting in 2015, uh, we started to commission every other year in odd years, 50 short climate change plays to enhance the amount, the library of plays that would be available, such as the one we just heard and the ones we're going to hear in just a moment. Uh, there are now 200 of those. Um, uh, with the second iteration in 2017 and then following in 2019, published into anthologies, uh, which uh, can be purchased and, and people can continue to use them. The premise of uh, how the CCTA gets organized is that as long as somebody, uh, the, the plays are made free for anybody to use, and as long as somebody is using one of those plays uh, as the cornerstone of an event, whether or not that's a formal reading or, or staging of it, uh, people will also take other take it to other uh, media uh film and podcast and radio or um, bring it into living rooms or classrooms and cafes where uh, anything can really be a, a ccta event as long as one of the plays is somehow involved in the 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 creation of that project. And uh, over the course of the four iterations that, that we've now been through, we've moved from about 70 participating uh, to, so I'm not sure where we'll end because we're still bringing people in to this year's CCTA, but we're gonna end up somewhere between three and 400 sites around the world as well as uh, the, the, the number of playwrights that have been in, involved um, and continue to produce events. Uh, it's gonna be running for another few weeks, uh, culminating on uh, December the 18th, if I have that date correctly, off the top of my head. The design charrette that came in, uh, came with an idea coming out of the second CCTA, which, uh, well, sort of germinated in the, in the first CCTA, which was around this idea that like, how can we get other aspects of, of theater, other theater artists involved in ideating around what a, a theater 
leader that responded to climate change looked like. So we put out an open call after the, the first climate change theater action in 2015, seeing who would be interested in being, in, uh, being involved. And there was a little bit of uptake there and then decided that we wanted to be proactive in 2017, commissioned 10 different designers uh, to design the plays that were that year had been specifically commissioned out of uh, Canadian playwrights. That was the um, uh, colonial sesquicentennial, 150th anniversary of the Confederation of Canada in its contemporary nation state form. Um, and we were uh, and had focused on Canadian content and Canadian issues in the CCTA that year and focused on having those designed in 2017. In 2019, working with Triga Creative, we set the ambitious goal of having a seed concept for every one of the plays uh, that is currently being put together into a design book as a companion to the play anthology that's already been released uh, to look through those design ideas in different ways of approaching it and combining that through a, sh a shred, an intensive period of work uh, to, um, to explore different ways of creation, ranging from uh, biological cultures uh, to reused bottle materials to extended reality. And now in 2021, uh, in this current CCTA, both um, with the events that you're seeing here through the Ecosonography Reading Group, uh, through a what is referred to as a global network learning class in the parlance of my university, uh, between myself, Tanya, and Tessa through our three universities, um, where we're bringing in students. And again, working through Triga with now a uh, global uh, roster of participating designers and the, uh, performance design artists, um, however they may commit themselves, are, are going through the same process of working uh, to um, create uh, design responses to all of the plays yet again. This time working not just to the print publication that we will release uh, following uh, along with an anthology, going into 2022 in sort of our fallow year, but also as part of an exhibition for world stage design in August of 2022, which will be uh, August 6th through 16th in Calgary, and which echo-sonography has become one of the three main organizing ideas around that event. Um, and at the same time, we're planning now again for 2023. Wow, that's impressive, Ian. Amazing. Um, great. Well, let's get started with the first reading. Um, this is Whistler by Giancarlo Abraham. It's going to be performed by Afsana, Jason, Shari, Miguel and Aisha with stage directions read by Shari and Aisha and Jason. Actors, when you're ready. Whistler by Giancarlo Abraham. On a rooftop at the edge of a city. On its edge, three chairs are whistling. Three in a row, in different pitches, almost mechanical. They summon a cool wind that blows. The chairs keep whistling mechanically, followed by the sound of a cool wind, unless stated otherwise. A boy sits on one of the chairs, closes his eyes, whistles too his own song. The wind sings back whenever the boy whistles his song. This first time, the wind catches with it two men who take a seat on the other chairs. They join the boy and the chairs in whistling. Suddenly, we are on a mountain and the boy takes a step toward the audience. On our island, all men were brothers of a sister of one of my mother's friends. We were all related. 
if not family, at least familiar. I learned from them this secret song that summons the winds to come to our island. The men demonstrate how to whistle, pursed lips, wriggle out tongue, press tip against teeth, then blow the air out. Now, machines are able to do what even the restless tongues of islands couldn't, call the wind without taking a breath. The men and the boys stop whistling, and then they narrate their history around the stage with their chairs. The real trade, though, was squeezing milk out of our mountains, like they were breasts. Calcium was very important then. It might still be today, depending on which doctors you ask. Except the world developed lactose intolerance, so we had to look for calcium elsewhere and forget certain flowers. Heads had to learn to wear new hats. Arms had to acclimatize to sleeves. The mechanical whistling finally stops. Cool wind stops blowing. A siren wails. In new positions on the stage, the men and the boys sit on their chairs. Anyway, our mountains had been flat-chested for a while, so we were given... A woman enters and gives envelopes to the men and the boy. A green new deal. The men and the boy open the envelopes. On sheets of paper, transcriptions of their misinterpretations. Uh, a grey nude eel. A green nude hail. Agri, no deal. No, 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 green. 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 New. 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 Deal. Deal. A green new deal. Green new deal. Green new deal. Yes, green new deal. We're running out of time. The siren wailed uh, faster and louder. Again, transcriptions of the men's misinterpretations. Green new deal. Granule deal. Yield heal. Angry new deal. Both men shake the hands of the woman as the woman exits. You're welcome. Yes, thank you. Good morning. Well, hello there. Good morning. The mechanical whistling returns. So does the cool wind. The men put their chairs in the original position and then exit. Not so sure how much they understood. We were just doing the right thing. I'm not very good at leaving, you see. I never get to say goodbye. When I heard of the emergency, I just knew I had to move. But I'm not very good at dance, you know? And so I let my song and chants take me. When these men, who were brothers of a sister of one of my mother's friends, when they took the deal, they just took off. Their direction, away from the island. And so did I. The boy stands up and starts whistling on the edge of the stage. The wind starts singing again. Suddenly, we are back on a rooftop at the edge of the city. The woman enters again, stares at the view. The boy notices. Good morning. Oh yeah, morning. The wind sings back. The woman takes a deep breath, smells something sweet. You smell that? Ah, oh, fresh air. You mean sweat air? Well, I didn't mean fresh. But the sweat air, that's me. Not just fresh, that's me. Well, you neither look sweaty nor smell sour to me. No, no, no. I meant sweet air. 
That's me. Sweet and fresh. I didn't know there was a difference. The boy stops whistling. The mechanical whistling carries on. The boy watches the cool wind passing by. <sighs> there, that's plain fresh air. We worked so hard for that. Hmm, I see. Well, not really see, but I can feel it in my lungs. But sweat, you can actually hear it too. Listen. The wind sings back. The woman hears. The boy gestures for the woman to breathe. The boy and the woman breathe deeply. The boy licks his lips. The woman hers. Mmm, sweet air. And if you're lucky, the wind sometimes brings not only a song, but also rain. And does rain taste any different? Like sweat and mangoes. Oh, salty? If it's rain called by my song, it's going to be the sweatest. Well, I've tried dried mangoes and really love them. Boy stops whistling, annoyed even. But dried mangoes aren't mangoes. Well, what are they then? Exports. Against artificial preservatives? Preservatives. A man must be willing to wait under the sun for the wind to be ripe with rain before whistling his song. For heart that longs for heat bears the wisdom of mangoes while a tongue dipped long enough in fermented fish knows sweetness best. You mean a long history of looking back. But who can afford that anymore? Who can't afford, we can't afford to be on our island. When a city is only as good as it smells, it cannot afford even the cheapest fermented fish to serve my memory. But you can't afford us being in our mountains. Mountains are still being squeezed for poisonous milk though. <laughs> These days, my people only call on the wind for the pleasure of mangoes on our tongue, because, this, because the city can only take what is sweat. <laughs> he smiles. Well, that's funny. Not what you said. Funny, what is that? It can't be the river. No, it only means that soon it's going to rain. Really? That snow means it's going to rain? It has, actually, but not yet here. He looks at the view. Purses lips as if to whistle, but stops. Whistle again then? Why don't you just learn? Boy demonstrates to the woman how to whistle. Purses lips, wiggles out tongue, presses the tip against his teeth and then blows air out. The woman tries but fails and keeps on trying until she can finally whistle. The boy and the woman whistle as if in a trance. The wind sings back at them until rain falls on their foreheads. They taste the raindrops. Sweet, sweat. Sweat, sweet. Boy purses his lips as if to kiss. A siren wails. The trance is broken. Sweet, uh, sweat, sorry, emergency. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Uh, can you save the rain for next time? The woman rushes to exit, the sound of whistling in threes, in different pitches, mechanical, then a cold wind blows. Boy purses his lips as if to whistle, sighs instead. It does not rain. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, actors. I'm really, um, really beautiful and, and what, a, what an amazing piece. 
Um, it's it's just so incredible how that play creates such a sense of world and its use of language and play on language. And to me, sound is like another character in this play piece as well, which is one of the reasons why we chose it, looking at sound as sonography. So Tony, this first question is for you as a sound designer. Sound plays a major role in encapsulating the absurdist world of Whistler. What initial design ideas came up for you when reading the script? How might you translate these first impressions into an oral spatial performance, particularly in reference to the secret song that summons the winds? It's interesting that you use the word um, uh, absurdist to describe the play because my first impressions was that taking all of that information in in one reading or even hearing it was a lot to process for an audience um, there's so many different concepts and ideas to try and run through so uh, my way of processing that was to read it and hear it and thought it would be interesting for the audience to hear almost exactly what we heard then where you're hearing the stage structures you're hearing the mechanical breakdown of what language does to a work like that and how that changes those interpretations. Then we get to the end of that first version, loop back to the beginning and then do it more as a staged performance where you actually then insert the mechanical sounds of the, the um, artificial wind through the um, uh, highly tuned metallic sounds of the chairs and then have the performers add that human element of whistling out of tune by Western standards and kind of have that zoom in and out and be different as they're trying to learn all of that with um, recorded versions of winds and there's an infinite version of winds that can be recorded out there in the world layered in at those key moments to run through for a second time but then going back for a third time and actually removing the um, uh understanding of the language at the detailed form and abstracting that further into the sounds of plosives and taking out the noises so that the performers are actually just performing breathy versions of what that interpretation of that text could be and blending that in with the artificial um, mechanical winds and the pre-recorded um, uh, natural sounds so that the final version of the loop is actually all of the beautiful sounds that are in that the poetry of the text woven together without necessarily the imposed version of what the language needs to be so they can see how that can evolve and can change to pull out some of those deeper meanings that are in the text. Thanks, Tony. That sounds amazing. I love how you're talking through the process as well of how you would go about coming up with the sound design and, and obviously you would be testing some of these out ideas out in rehearsal with actors and the director to see how it all emerges um, and co-emerges together. And what I was thinking very much was, uh, like you, the, the notion of layering. So layering um, live sound from actors as well as pre-recorded sound and the potential of looping. And, and um, also interesting thing about like different sounds, like the idea of tinniness and the mechanical kind of... Uh, the mechanical sounds that this play brings up as well as the more organic, which I think is kind of interesting to think about that as a contrast. It, it seems like a very multi-sensory play. So if we're thinking more broadly, the idea of smell also comes into play. And it's interesting to think about sound and smell are often things that are not considered enough, I would say, in performance design. It's always about the, the visual 
comes first. So I like the way that the playwright has really focused on those other design elements that often don't get enough focus. Great. So moving on to, I suppose, the more visual context. And this is for Ian. And this question is, as a lighting designer, what are the parts of the script that resonated with you most? How would you, how would you to begin, begin to consider the world of the play as expressed through light, in particular, the author's reference to the rooftop at the edge of the city as the setting of the play? Yeah, I mean, one of the things, and, and similarly in sort of like a transitional idea, there is the idea of the, the coming of rain, which actually um, spoke a lot to me in terms of the, the lighting. There are, so there's a few different ideas that, that come up uh, through the text for me. One is this weather shift idea. Over, over the course of it, which I think is like, these are all interrelated. So I'll start with um, this idea of the shifting weather. I think that there's an idea of directionality. One of the things that I like about the rooftop is that it really opens it up so that um, you, you really can make sense if you want to anchor it into actual space, you can make sense of light coming from a number of different um, angles and directions. And I think that that's important and we'll come back to that in a moment. I think that there's an element of at the atmospheric because I'm getting a sense, um, not to, uh, of uh, based off of the reference to the, the, you know, the smell of mango, et cetera, and the centrality of that, that there's a bit like it being, like there's indicators of the, the, the climate being somewhat tropical as, uh, from there. So I like the idea of atmosphere and, um, and uh, and humidity that comes along with that are coming along with those ideas. Um, and one of the core ideas that I come to um, because of that is this idea of relationship to the angle of the sun and an equatorial sun versus a European sun. There's a lot of lighting conventions that we have in theater um, that, I, and I have really only my own thoughts to back this up. I should do research into this at some point, but I've always felt and so far as looking at the way that if you look at seasonal relationships to light as they hit the earth that a lot of our conventions around angles of what we expect within theater are built around things that have much more of a a temperate seasonal relationship. So as you move equatorial, the light moves overhead. And so there is this idea that, that, that comes through this piece as we're talking about approaching weather in that uh, and being at the uh, being on the top of a building at the edge of the city so this, this sort of interface zone that you can sort of be surrounded from multiple angles that in sort of starting with this idea of that equatorial overhead uh, sun um, that might be more directional and filling that humid space that as the, the, the idea of the cloud or potential of rain coming in uh, comes in, that that gets much more diffuse and comes in from uh, uh, many other places. And that it's at the edge of the city and thinking that it might be the edge of a city in the Philippines, that we might be adjacent to water as well, that that gives you the opportunity to both reflect up, um, to, to fill in, to really highlight um, uh, or, or cause an uneasiness uh, around that idea of where that where that light's coming from, that sort of equatorial idea, and shifting that into something that is much more cloudy. I keep thinking of my own personal experience of living in the city of Houston during 2011, which is much not quite as equatorial 
um, but rains quite a bit being subtropical. Um, and in 2011 had very little rain, but we continually, whereas in other times when I've lived there, it rained nearly every other day. And that we continually get that cloud cover and you'd be going through these cycles of changes in lighting from like the bright directional sun, especially midday, because it's a very hot place. And then it's spreading out and retaining that sort of like stifling humidity um, and brightness uh, within that humidity. So that's that's sort of, as I think about like the transition from one point to another uh, within that, that's, that's, those are sort of an accumulation of the ideas that come to mind. Great. Thanks, Ian. That's really rich. And both, uh, I think, Tony and Ian have, have pointed to some beautiful ideas. It's interesting because when I read um, this script in particular, I did see it in a more of a traditional theatre setting, perhaps because it because of the absurdist language and the use of, of effects, I suppose. It'd be interesting to think, how would you take this out into a site-specific location mm. and, and work with light and sound in that way? Um but yeah, just something to think about. So we're going to move on to the second play. Um, and this is Mulong by Damon Shaw. And it's performed by Afsana and Shari with stage directions read by Miguel and Jason. Actors, when you're ready. Mulong by Damon Shaw. Characters. Characters. Ibunda, an older woman a person of color. Wati, a younger woman, a person of color. Background, indigenous peoples make up about 6% of world population but inhabit more than a quarter of our planet's land area. Harnessing their knowledge and philosophy on sustainability is vital to the future of biodiversity and humankind. Note, molong, a Penan word, is pronounced molong with stress on the second syllable. Its meaning will be clear as a play goes along. Part one, Ibunda sits in a chair facing the audience. Wati combs Ibunda's hair. Even though the two are interacting, they exist in separate spheres of being and in different times. When she was born, the powers that be said she was useless and should be thrown away. I was free, roaming the forest, dancing with the trees. When she came of age, she was married to someone who never spoke and never smiled. I went to the edge of the realm, saw the sky meeting the vastest ocean. When she grew older, they moved her to a settlement and cut her off from her land. I climbed mountains so high, I reached the top of clouds. When she died, no one mourned her passing. No one remembered her stories, except me. I... What he begins to hum, it is an ancient tune that conveys all the joys and all the sorrows. Lights change. Part two, a time when the two women exist. Look, you see them? Stars? No. I see them. In your imagination. Are you suggesting... There are no stars. But what's that then? Remember the men with their machines and bulldozers and chainsaws? Maybe. When they came and started cutting down the trees, 
Maybe. They burn the forests to make room for their own trees. Why would they do that? That's what they do. They, the forest burned, the sky filled with smoke and ash. Do you remember? I remember when morning mists shrouded saplings and undergrowth and revealed fruits and flowers when the sun rose. That's gone. Gone. Too hot. No more mists. No stars because of the smoke and ash. Really? She looks up and tries to ask the stars. Is that true? There is no answer. Lights change. Part three. When Ubunda was younger. When the scientists came, I thought it was my way out. Out of the clutches of the powers that be. So I told them everything I knew. I told them the ways of the trees and the ways of nature. I told them how the colour of the sky changed and what it meant. I told them why the sizes of fruits and leaves determined everything. I taught them how to observe animals. I taught them how we farmed and foraged. I taught them how to tell time without a watch. I told them what could be eaten and what couldn't. I told them how to survive if they got lost. And of course, I told them about Molong. Molong. There is no us. There is no them. We live in balance, in harmony with everything. Everything. If we take, we give back. If we take more, we give back more. We know we'll be here for a long time, so we plan ahead how we feed, live, and be. At first, the scientists were confused, not sure what to think. Then they realized, we may not understand this Molong thing, but the rest of it, it's usable knowledge. So they recorded, learned, applied. They put me on TV. My name appeared in magazines, newspapers, important documents, no longer useless. But things changed. What happened? We are now back in the same time period as part two when the women exist together. You know what happens. Tell them. What's the use? I came with the scientists, a hired help, and straight away I knew this was special. You knew nothing. You were so young. The problem was nature was no longer our friend. The temperatures rose, the rains didn't come, everything went awry. We tried to... The colour of the sky, different. We tried to... Leaves, fruits, irregular. We tried. No one could tell anything anymore. It was... Nature was speaking another language. One too new to understand. We, I was useless once more. No. Please. Are they coming back? Always the same question. You know the answer. See? Come, let me comb your hair. 
After a moment of hesitation, Abunda sits down, assuming the same position as at the top of the play. As Wati comes, she hums another ancient melody. If only. What? Nothing. She is the last of her people. When she's gone, what are her stories? What of Molong? You know nothing about Molong. Well, this much I know. The scientists were only interested in facts and figures, things that can be measured, but more long. That's what makes the facts and figures dance, right? Well, that's something we agree on. The only thing we agree on. Isn't that a star? Look, look. Wati finally looks. She searches the sky, looking at every corner. As she does that, Abunda gets up and begins to dance, soundlessly, simply, beautifully. Lights fade, end of play. Thanks so much for that beautiful reading. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's such a, there's so much in all of these plays. It's hard to imagine that they're only five minutes long when there's so much rich, richness in each one of them. So this um, next question goes to Bronwyn. So in Malong, the playwright plays with having different timescales in the same space. How might you consider this as part of your lighting design? How might lighting help separate and unite time and space? So what, one of the things that really kind of strikes me about this piece is the way that it's written to, um, to give quite a lot of freedom but is also, to designers, but is, is also kind of factoring in those elements. So while it talks about a, a bunch of different timescales, it's not being really prescriptive about, you know, daytime and nighttime and, and sort of telling you where to go with it. It's just saying this is different to this. Um, so, like, what strikes me is the possibility of, of quite simple changes of space. So, so part one is can be set up as a, as a space where they're quite isolated. So, you know, it might be something like um, really individually picking them out. Then... Um, in part two, we go, uh, there's more of a connection to, um, to grounding. And so it might be that the first, the first part, we didn't see the floor. We were floating in space. And then the second part, we can ground us and connect us um, to kind of seeing more of the, the physical space that we're in. And that we're not... Um, those timescales don't dictate that any of them have to be a particular thing. It's actually more about how we feel about it. Um, and I kind of think that that's, for me, it's one of the main things that I do is that um, a lot of other people set the scene, um, do the, the, the practical elements of where are we, what are we doing, but I'm really part of saying how we feel about these moments. Um, so, you know, I think that that 
the time scales here give us those those separate separate feelings. Um, uh, oh, there's there's so many things. There's so many options in there. Um, uh, I think that there's also kind of a lot of room for for colour motifs that help us know when we're in one space and when we're in the other. Um, and I think that that's, that's also a kind of clever thought about, you know, where venues and venue stock is going to get it to a kind of really practical level of this space being able to, to kind of happen anywhere is that as we kind of move more towards kind of LED stock, colour is becoming the thing that we can play with more, you know, once upon a time you had a rig that was more about choosing your angles, whereas now we have this kind of plethora of colour that you can change, um, you know, without changing gel, etc. cetera. Uh, so being able to, to make these, these motifs of time about, you know, colour schemes um, kind of really works into where technology is going. Thanks so much, Bronwyn. I think you've really got to the nub of what we're talking about here with light and sound is that we're really, what we're talking about here and what sound and light do so well is create or evoke notions of feelings. So in a way, as a lighting designer and a sound designer, I can see that you are designing for feelings, you know, emotions. It's a very emotive medium and perhaps a arguably more emotive than perhaps you know the the conventional sort of set and costume design disciplines in theatre um in in that it gets kind of very very quickly we get into a state of of um either negative or positive or something in between um and that's that's really exciting so next question is to tony and we're talking about sound again here what kind of oral environment do you envision for this piece how might you consider the reference to the ancient tune that Wati is humming as part of the design concept? And how might you sustain um, might sustainability be included as part of your design thinking? Yeah, it's the nice thing about the play is that it is so open. Um, there's very little that is prescribed as far as we are here. We are doing this as far as all of that goes. Um, and uh as opposed to the previous play, it actually means that placing it somewhere physically in an environment, the idea of it being site-specific or uh, variable venues and things like that that aren't traditional spaces um, means that the oral environment that is in the space could actually be part of the curation of how the work's put together. It could be really interesting. The idea of putting it in a, uh, a car park next to a park or putting it in a... Um, farm next to a highway or something like that where you've got this kind of dichotomy of the natural sounds and the things that are referenced and talked about from the past um, and some of those modernized things that are clashing and things like that so the audience is actually experiencing that in a very organic and real way that can't necessarily be curated and will change every time that the performance is performed on what the space and things like that is which then kind of brings you to the idea of the the ancient tune that's going to change in my mind anyway um, depending on what land you're performing it on where the places are that you're talking about um, uh, this is written for a specific idea and a specific culture in mind that I don't know anything about so to go and uh, 
take that and implant that into somewhere that um, may not resonate in the same way um, is an interesting idea from a historic point of view, but from a lived thing, it might be more interesting to adapt it to whatever is appropriate for the area that you're in and go through the processes of the correct permissions and talking to um, the Indigenous people that is referenced at the start of the areas you're performing on and finding out what version of that is that then gets blurred together in some way with those environments you're actually performing on so that it's very much connected to land and place sonically as well as the physical environment. Yeah, beautiful, Tony. I really love that. I love how you're bringing it back to place because that's one of the fundamental, I suppose, uh, foundations of ecosonography that it is taking a more place-based response to how we do things and in a way of being more genuine and authentic um, to how we're performing and where we're performing as well as thinking about sustainability being part of that. So that's awesome. We've now to our final play. Um, and this is Ms. Hockward, The Sky is Clear by Dylan Thomas Elwood. It's going to be performed by Afsana, Jason, Shari, Aisha and Miguel with stage directions read by Shari, Aisha and Afsana. Actors, when you're ready. Ms. Hockward, The Sky is Clear by Dylan Thomas Elwood. Characters, Coyote, Male. Sun, female, black snake, any gender, raven, female, suit, male. Lights up on a twisted, decayed forest clearing. Fireflies hang in the air, giving off a faint blue glow. The trees dotted around the stage are skeletal, heavy with black moss and dripping oil. The ground is cracked and barren. Coyote sits on his knees, center stage, his head hung in sorrow. He wears tethered leather clothes and beaded choker and fur over his sleeves. He gradually lifts his head, staring into the audience. It was all a long dream, a wish, a promise, soft grass underfoot, crisp air on my face, the warm kiss of that lucky old sun. Sun, enter. Stage right, she wears a brilliant yellow dress, sparkling with, with crystals and shards of mirror. She dances a slow step towards Coyote. He does not react. But one day, even old son cast her gaze away in shame. She took a look over Turtle Island and screamed out, how could it come to this? Sun stops her dance and looks around the trees. She grabs her head and shrieks, falling to her knees. How could it come to this? The black snake covered Sun's eyes, tried to quiet her cries, and now all that falls on us is venomous rain. Black snake enters stage right. They are a mass of torn black and grey fabric, gloved and clawed hands, tentacles and smoke. They wrap their arms around Sun's head lovingly and slowly tear her offstage right. When Sun went away for the winter, she took all her warmth with her. Where once the rivers ran, now they crawled, bubbling and sour. The grasses bent sideways and curled up brown. The trees fell around their roots and made their quiet exit. Raven enters, stage left. 
with a limp. She wears gray and dark blue scarves with red paint spiraling her cheeks. She kneels to the ground, lifting stagnant water to her mouth. She winces as it touches her lips and begins to retch silently. Black Snake enters stage right, drifting around the stage in a slow and crooked dance. They curl around Raven's back, massaging her shoulders. Their touch seems to drain Ra Raven's energy and she begins to droop over. Black Snake releases her and runs their hands over the trees. The Black Snake took us all in its coil. Its scales touched the sky. Its fangs pierced the water. It doesn't mean us harm. It truly never did. It is like a child, unknowing of the pain its power can cause. But its thirst is insatiable. Its belly aches unrelenting. And it feeds on our negative thoughts, our greed and malicious urges. Black Snake wafts behind Coyote, planting a small kiss on the top of his forehead. Its breath fills this land with sorrow. Our sorrow is the mother of hate, and hate is the little brother of war. Black Snake caresses Coyote's forehead and lies down in front of him, running their fingers along his arms and chest. We are not at war with the poison water or the white frost or the choking air. We are at war with ourselves. Suit comes running on stage right. He wears tattered, oil-streaked Wall Street attire. He carries a, small, a metal pipe and lunges at Raven. Raven shrieks a war cry and rises to meet him. Suit swings the pipe at her, but she catches it, and a tug of war ensues over the weapon. Black Snake rises up beside Coyote, watching the Malay, clapping their hands with glee. Please, how could it come to this? Raven knocks Suit to his back and begins bludgeoning him with the pipe. Black Snake gets to their feet and dances around the scene, their movements growing chaotic, following no rhythm or beat. Is there still time? Stop, please stop. Raven stops her assault and turns to Coyote, panting. Black Snake abruptly stops their dance, confused. Coyote shakily rises to his feet. Turning to Raven. Please, it's not too late. It can't be. Raven drops the metal pipe to the stage. Suit grasps, gasps, and holds his chest. Raven approaches Coyote and embraces him tightly. I'm sorry, old friend. Don't be, my love. We will know that blue again. Mizakwad, can't you see it? Raven turns to look stage right. I, I can't, I can't see a thing. Look, my love, she's come to see us again. Sun gently enters stage right, carrying a luminous torch. It radiates light across the stage. Raven turns to face Sun. Coyote holds Raven around her waist, hugging her close. Suit rises to a sitting position, amazed by the light. Black Snake stomps in fury, running to Coyote and Raven, trying desperately to pry them apart with their clawed hands. The two won't budge. Sun holds a hand out to Suit and lifts him to her feet. She holds the torch out to him and he cautiously takes it. 
In a fury, Black Snake rushes at Suit. Sam claps her hands at Black Snake. A thunderclap. Black Snake is thrown to their back. Coyote and Raven hold their hands out to Suit. He slowly approaches them. They step to either side of him, kneeling down and raising their hands in gratitude. Suit's shoulders begin to quake as he falls into sobs. Sun comes up behind Suit and holds him in a motherly embrace. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. It's all right. The black snake has not yet awakened. See to it their eyes stay closed. Suit leans his head into Sun's neck. Do not be afraid. Lights down. Thank you so much again for the beautiful readings. Um, really, really, again, what a wonderful script, something very different to the others as well. Each of these scripts is so unique. Um, so I might just get straight into the questions. So this one is for Ian. The play makes a strong reference to the ap ap apocalyptic stage setting as part of its storytelling. How does the play inspire you to take a particular lighting approach to the work and how might sustainability also be included in your concept? Yeah, um, apocalyptic is an interesting word. Um, it's also, it's just like a huge shift from where we are, right? Um, and that in some ways moving into something that is post now into the future, um, where we're talking about the end to our current civilization, societal state, is implying sort of an end to something industrial or capitalist or or within our current systems. And so like the, I think part that there's part of this in the title, the sky is clear. I've been thinking a lot recently about the idea of um, uh, a, a, po a post-apocalyptic utopia versus a lot of the dystopian futures that we, uh, that we look at. But part of that leads to some of the lighting ideas, but um, uh, this, is, this is not a lighting idea, but I, I really wanna do this outside because I want to make the technologies that would make uh, of renewable energy be visible. I would like there to be um, the ability for one to see like solar panels. I feel like I wanna talk to with a costume designer, but also integrating that into sun as part of those reflective elements when we're talking about the mirrored uh, uh, aspects there. Um, so, uh, why, why outside one, um, I, my immediate thought to how to, cause I, I, there's a, there's a strong feeling that I have towards like a conventional dance approach to pull people off of the ground and surface on the sides, but I don't want to like, just put it into a theater. And so my impulse into trying to figure out how to make it. So all the lighting is sourced out of, um, the things that have a renewable uh, power to them is actually to have them uh, be uh, spots operated from people on bikes, which have uh, which uh, have to power them. Uh, that anything else that's external to the uh, the performer or anybody on stage is coming from solar. Essentially, that it's in a in a way that it's actually being staged in a way that would work um, if uh, we like our power grid um, no longer. Um, supplied power that we couldn't get into a theater. So moving outside, it also opens up the idea of actual fire. But at the same time, I also wanted like, I'm, I'm thinking more about the scenography in some ways than the lighting. because so I also want it to be in like a, a, 
effect i'm i wrote it down as clearing um because i want it to be in a space that uh in addition to these lights coming from outside these performers that because there's so much evocative language in there in terms of the surfaces the materials etc of each of these characters changing the shape of the performer, like uh, moving that. I really want to be able to highlight and catch that. So part of that is the reflections of the sun. Um, it's a certain uh, serpentine shape of the of snake. However, that ends up being realized. Um, it's the the rags and the the like cloth uh, that's referred to in Raven uh, as clothing, and how those different shapes happen. Um, there are two thoughts of what a of relationship to that one uh, is with the sun and with others of helping to indicate that shape in space through actually trying to uh, collect kinetic energy off of the performers moving. It might not be the most useful light, but also having them being able to emanate light as well, which is also an important thing um, with sun uh, in there. And um uh, and then also, oh, what was the other idea? Here? So it's the kinetic wearables idea. Um, but um, as light comes off of them, and especially if of sun reflecting off, I want it to be able to hit something because in this idea that it is post-apocalyptic, I want the audience to be able to have an experience where they are seeing the shape of the space that we're in re-evaluated and I think with the mirrors coming off of that and the potential for reflections off of that that they could change around the way that someone is perceiving in a, a space that you of of not walls but whether it's trees or some sort of clearing some sort of like boundary to that space that there is the ability to reflect off of so that in coming into the, the assumption of that space can be played with by the things that are reflecting off of it um, as well. I think that those are both get to that apocalyptic idea, but also bring in currently available um, renewables, like contemporary sustainable practices, and see how those can come together in a way that I think could be a much more utopic vision than like uh, the standard dystopias that were were fed in a in a after a climate apocalypse, quote unquote. Yeah, nice, nice ideas there, Ian. Like you're really getting into the whole sonography of of the play, which is awesome. And it is interesting because the play is a lot of the play is less reading and more descriptions. I would say it's it's probably even more descriptions than reading. So the actors were almost reading more descriptions than than actually dialogue, which is really interesting. It's very specific around costuming, around lighting. So the playwright obviously has some very strong ideas about how they want this to be performed. So moving on to Bromwen. Um, the referen references to climate and weather feature a lot in this play. Sun is literally a personified character in the story. How do you imagine designing for sun? How might costuming and staging be combined with light to enhance the story of the play? And how might sustainability be integrated into your design conceptualization? What I'm finding really interesting about this piece is I had quite a different response to reading it on the page earlier than hearing it. And um, like initially when I was thinking about the sun, I was, was thinking about... Um, the the fact that it's written in you know in a single location allows for a really kind of like high concept lighting design of of something like it's mostly lit and lit from a 
a single light source that represents the sun with just sort of some sort of little glow that you could see the rest of it when the sun is away and the sun kind of pulsing in and out as this like really intense light from one angle. Um, but then once I was listening to it read out loud, I actually went down sort of a different path where I actually, I also wanted to take it outside. Um, Ian and I have had some really similar responses to this, but I wanted to take it outside and um, put it in a location where I could use the sun as the sun. Um, I had a recent project because of uh, COVID rescheduling that suddenly what was supposed to be a nighttime show was going to be a daytime show and I was already contracted and they were like, well, how can we still use you? And what we were going to do was use me to kind of look at where the sun was going to be at that particular time of day and orientate the show to best utilise daylight. So I would actually be a daylight lighting designer. And I'd kind of love to do that with this. So I'd love to kind of have some sort of contraption that would allow um, to choose a location that the sun was going to hit. Obviously, this is all a bit kind of like out there because you'd have to get to put on the show on the right day that the sun was shining bright. But let's just go to this fantastical place. Um, so you pick the location that the sun is kind of beaming in at the angle you want on the playing space. And then with some kind of blinds or shutters, you're, you're revealing and, and hiding the actual sun shining on the stage. And I loved what Ian was saying about the, you know, the possibility of outside bringing in fire. Um, so that maybe actually the rest of it when the sun is being hidden is actually just lit by nat other natural light sources like fire. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I'm already going into the logistics of this in my brain and it's a bit of a nightmare, but um, it's very exciting. Um, I also, um, like Anne, was really responding to the idea of reflection and mirror. Um, and was starting to imagine this, this costume of the sun. I think most of my focus in this piece was about the sun. Um, that was, you know, like almost like a mirror ball, but more exciting um, to kind of really let that character of the sun reflect and radiate light everywhere so that you get this kind of contrast of this dark space that you can barely see into and that every time the sun comes in it's it's really blinding and when they kind of really hit that peak position on stage that the the sunlight is hitting them um they're like a supernova um it'd be very exciting um yeah and I mean I think that the, the most possible sustainable lighting designer we could be is to actually just control light that already exists. So um, it'd be so exciting to try and, and make that kind of lighting design. Great. Awesome. Exciting. I really want to see this show. <laughs> I think it's really interesting in terms of, I mean, you're both both sound like you're working potentially on the similar show. Um, but I think it's interesting, Bronwyn, is that you're actually sort of inverting or turning the notion of the lighting designer on its head here 
with your idea of using spatial techniques to to access lighting sun that already exists it's it's one of those things that I always think is kind of crazy when particularly in a home environment where people will you know the sun particularly in a place like Queensland where the sun is very very strong and it's coming through you know the windows and people will have you know, their curtains closed and their lights on in the house. And I just think, what are you doing? It's crazy. And if you, and the light is so much better. The one that's coming from outside is so much brighter. It's so much, um, the colouring is so much better than just whatever you've got at home. So that I agree. I think that's really exciting to think about how, again, how we work with place and we use the energy that is around us um, and rather than, then going back to some of those uh, traditional forms of making theatre lighting, actually exploring new aesthetics and new processes, which which is basically what both of you are talking about, um, using sustainability as an innovation, which is really cool to ecosomography. So that's awesome. That's really exciting. So this is um, now we've, we've done all the play readings. We've had the formal questions. This is now open to the audience, both online and in situ, to ask any questions to our panel. This is an amazing opportunity to ask questions um, about any of the plays um, and any of the responses um, that we've had. And while we're all waiting for that to come through, any questions to come through, I might actually have a quick check-in with the actors and, um, and see what their experience was like and their thoughts of the plays. Maybe Jason, do you wanna maybe tell us how, how you found the readings and the plays? And I know you're a theatre maker as well, so there might be some different ideas that you got from the plays as well. Um, well, obviously, you know, they're idea works, so they're, they're, they're the kernel of something larger. Um, so for me as a theatre maker, when you look at it, you go, okay, cool, well, how would you build upon this? Um, like the designers are talking about, you know, how would you build upon it to make story or to push the story in a way that... Um, could have a, a much larger life or a much rounder life. Um, but just to echo what Tony said, because Tony was talking about, um, you know, depending on where the place was done in terms of the ancient voice, with some of these pieces, I, I'd love to, I mean, the only element missing here is I can't ask um, the person who has written the coyote one about their background or about their traditional background. So for me, it's very hard to interpret unless I sat down with them to talk about what the sun means to them or what um, the coyote means and what, you know, what is totem and what is not and what those things mean to a First Nations person, similarly in, in terms of Molong as well. So for me, that would be a process as a director that process would be very specific for me. I would have to go and sit with that writer and try and understand um, where those voices have come from as much as I could in my, um, uh, in, in my limited way. But uh, to immerse yourself in some of that, and I know we're just dreaming here, we're just thinking about how to do different things and that, but I, but I think it's really integral uh, to a, for a maker to, to really go right into that, um, if someone is using the land around them or talking about land um, in a traditional context, uh, as we do often here in Australia, there is a responsibility for artists to kind of investigate that more with permission. And so 
that would be my first stop if I was if I was directing it. I would go, okay, cool. Well, talk to me more about how we can illuminate this. And then it's about an audience, isn't it? It's about going, well, what is an audience going to get from the piece? What do I want them to feel? What do I want them to walk away with? Um, yes, we want them to walk away thinking climate change. Yes, we need to do something about it. Um, and and uh, just I was working on a piece recently about flying foxes in far north Queensland. There are critically endangered flying foxes called the speckled flying fox. And we're making a little kids show which has puppetry, anim live animation and um, actors as well. And uh, that show uh, is that literally about a tree where the town is trying to get rid of the flying foxes because of the development, it's interrupting development. And people don't like flying foxes because they're ugly. But unfortunately, because of the, the, um, the, rain, the rainforest, the way the ecosystem works is that the flying foxes drop uh, the quandong fruit, which the cassowaries eat. And if you've ever seen a cassowary, it's a magnificent uh, dinosaur bird that is so beautiful. Um, but people think about the cassowary and they think, oh, the cassowary is great. Let's save the cassowary. But what they don't realise is that flying fox is integral to that. So how to make something of the land attractive to humans in that. So we, we've made a, ki a kids show, basically, and they call them sky puppies. A lot of the rescuers call them sky puppies because the babies are so cute. So we've gone down this track of kind of try our attempt is to try and make baby bats as cute as possible so that humans will go, we'll save them. Um, so I guess it's about talking about talking and that's about talking to the people who are from there. That was about talking to people who are from there, to rescuers, to children, to all different sorts of people and to indigenous um, people from that place. Cause there are a couple of those people in the show. Anyway, that's my, my rant about all of that. Thanks, Jason. That sounds like an amazing show. Um, I, I love the idea of sky puppies. I've never heard that before. Um, but yeah, I, it, they, you've always got your hero species that are the ones that, you know, the koalas, the kangaroos, the ones that get people passionate about um, the environmental crisis. And then the whole way it works in ecology is that you have your hero animals that help also fund the ones, the animals that are not so beautiful or aesthetically pleasing to us humans, but obviously a really integral part of the ecosystem. So have we got a question uh, in the q and I, I don't have, I actually don't have access to the Q&A. You want me to read it? I that would be it. great, thanks. Um, Erica says, I love the idea that sustainable lighting is using that which is already out there. Besides mirrors, what other ways might you use to bounce and control natural light into spaces? Ooh, nice. Who, which lighting designer wants to answer this one? Uh, oh, Ron, oh, when you were typing already, I saw that. <laughs> I was. I was about to start typing an answer. So, so what we were looking at um, with this project, which, you know, got delayed again, but so who knows what's going to happen when it next happens. We were looking at um, the, the times of day. Um, so this project was going to be at about six o'clock. Um, so six o'clock in Melbourne in November is still really quite bright. Um, uh, we were looking at at the angle that the sun was, you know, because the sun was going to be starting to come down, what angle that was going to be coming in um, and what the buildings around were going to shadow and what was not going to be shadowed. Um, we were looking at 
we were looking at like mirrors in terms of reflecting light onto something, but we were also looking at costuming with sparkle in it to make characters pop. So it wasn't necessarily that the light was bouncing off them onto something else, but just bouncing off them in a way that made them kind of shimmer. It was a circus piece, so, you know, the the options for shimmer and sequins was endless. Um, We were also looking at... Um, I mean, we were looking at the possibility of still using some theatrical lighting in the shadows. Um, I think that was as far, that was as far as that particular project got before COVID got in there and cancelled it. Um, but I guess you know, control and aperture. Um, a, a completely closed window is different to a window with a translucent blind to a window with with louvers that is casting, you know, shadow and light, um, kind of all of those different ways we can we can affect an aperture of natural light. Great. Yeah. Thanks. Oh, sorry, Ian, you want to add? Oh, I was going to very similarly in, you know, crossing over from like video work, you can add in bounces and things like that to sort of like direct it a little bit more things that are usually off camera to give uh a, a little bit we, we were doing a piece um uh that was happening at at dawn um uh which is always fun to accomplish um uh, but have gotten a lot of mileage out of especially when the sun is low around like gold uh bounces that you normally use to like reflect gold light in film um, and they're really like compelling visual things. They're usually lightweight. So we get putting them in a performer's hand that allow you to really direct a little bit of light in a, in a controlled way as well as, as another. Um, and they're brought into performance similar to like the, uh, the, the, the aperture is putting different mediums in, in, in that that you were talking about, Bronwyn. But I really love, it's just something that I'm very uh, enamored with now is using like the gold foil reflective pop-up bounces that you can use in film because you can get like a nice bounce into things as well and start shaping that um a little uh, like even more great thank you there's a lot of great conversations happening here i think we have another question is that from the audience great Hello, my name is Meg and I'm at QUT. I'm a technical production student and I have an annoyingly practical question. Um, for things, so most of the readings that we've, that we've, that we explored today, everyone kind of had the idea of setting them outside. Now, outside is a very unpredictable place to set a theatre show. So how, if rain occurs, if there is cloud cover how do we keep the the lighting and even the sound um in this eco-sonography setting uh without you know adding technology to to drown out that noise or that um the lack of natural light from a sound perspective 
uh, whenever you walk into a space, whether it's a, a traditional theater space, a convention center, or a, a found space, or, or whether it's a park or a parking lot, um, there's always going to be a noise floor of a certain level as far as that. It's already going to have its own natural environment, whether that's air conditioning buzz or whether that's the highway next door. Um, and knowing how that is and embracing that and making that part of it is kind of that a really clear easy distinction between the idea of sonography and the idea of just a traditional design of going let's blank everything out let's make it nothing actually embracing that noise and knowing that there's going to be a truck blast pass at some point in time i know in the past i've done works uh where we know the theater's got a train going by so that just becomes part of the world and you work that into the scape and lean into that rather than push against it because anytime you start fighting with those elements you're going to lose because they're usually bigger stronger and uh, more unpredictable than anything that you're going to come up with but when you embrace them suddenly that changes the audience perspective on the space that they're in what the work's about and how they're going to kind of contribute to their experience as a part of the performance their noise that they make as an audience changes and shifts in an interesting way sometimes as well to go along with that so um, there's always going to be if it's if we're in the subtropics it's a giant storm it's going to be very hard to perform a certain type of work but it doesn't mean that that's not part of the experience for the audience of showing up to a work that they know there's going to be at. You go to a music festival and it pisses down rain. Those are usually the ones that are most memorable 10 years down the track rather than the one that you weren't at as you were sliding around in the mud or doing all those sorts of things. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up music festivals because I, that, that my mind went there as well. And in my experience with music festivals, you just keep going unless there's a lightning strike like unless it's actually dangerous to perform you know if you're working out outdoors usually you've made your logistical plan and ensured things for potential for weather like that's part of the planning process of um like the equipment if you're bringing in outside equipment it might be hard to if we're using real fire it might be hard to keep those going sometimes if you're in a torrential downpour um uh, but with all those like planning components in place, moving outside of the safety of a very controlled theatrical venue, um, you, you just keep going until the lightning strikes and you got to cover up and turn everything off, in my, in my experience. Yeah, great. And actually, we've got a comment from Imogen saying, um, thank you, Anthony. I was rehearsing a show outside along a railway line this morning and we had a very had this very discussion about the sound of trains being incorporated into the soundscape rather than running from it. Same with rain. And Bronwyn, I know that you're um you you design a lot for La Mama Theatre. And I know La Mama Theatre has a new theatre now, which is very exciting. But I wondered if you might if you I was just thinking about La Mama, the old La Mama and the, uh, the, I think it was the garbage truck that used to come around and be part of the the It was show. the bottles out the back. It's That's the... right. Do you want to mention that? Do you want to just tell us about that? Yeah. So it's the, the, the back, well, I mean, the mama can, you can orientate in any way, but what is quite frequently sort of the back of the stage, there's a door that opens directly to where a restaurant brings out their bottles 
and um, throws them, you know, throws them into the recycle bin. And, of course, there's no control over it whatsoever. On a Monday or Tuesday night, it's less frequent. On a Friday or Saturday night, in a one-hour show, you could get, like, three or four bottle drops. And, um, you know, some shows fight against it and try to ignore it. And I know plenty I've been involved in plenty of shows that have just worked it into it and acknowledge it and let it happen. And it's just, you know, it's part of the texture of being in that space. Um, I actually made an immersive work in the show and we were so determined that the bottle drop needed to be part of the soundscape that we actually set up a pulley system so that there was a thing that we could would pull with inside the theatre that on the other side of the wall would actually drop some bottles into a bin. Um, so we would we would get it randomly from the restaurant, but we would also have a very practical one where we just tugged the string and some bottles dropped. So we got at least a couple of bottle drops per show. <laughs> That's great. I didn't even know that I've never heard of anyone working it quite the same way into a show than what you've just described, from and that that's on an that's on another level. It's great. It's not, it's Sorry. actually having fun with it rather than here we go again. Here's the bottle drop, right in the middle of a very 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 serious scene. You know. Um, yeah. Okay, so just before we, I know we've got to uh, close up very shortly. We're going slightly over time because we had our play reading at the start. Just checking if there's any more questions from the audience uh, in the space. And there is one more question online. So this comes from Carol Stevenson Roy. I was struck by something Tony said about depending on where the piece is set and where it is performed, the lighting and sound choices need to be carefully considered. And I'm thinking back to something Keith said in the first session about how he enjoyed it when other Indigenous cultures performed his pieces and contributed their own voices and style to the script. I'm wondering if you think it's more appropriate to capture the lighting sound from the perspective of the author or the audience. So I don't know who wants to answer this one. Yes. Okay, great. <laughs> that's my answer. No, 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 that's my answer. Yes, it is more important to capture it from the audience. Um, I don't know. It depends on the, I, I think it depends on the project. I will be less coy with my answer and say that I think that it it depends on a uh, on, uh, dis uh, discussion. I mean, when I, I know that I went, I'll, I'll answer it seriously in terms of my process. Um, if I, it, it, when I'm starting with a project, oftentimes what I have to go on is the the author's like trying to think through the author's intention or talking to the author to see what the intentions are to see how that might be. I think one of the challenges of approaching things as a designer is being able to have that information or any of the information and not let it be the, um, well, in, 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 uh, when I was studying architecture in undergrad, uh, we, we just always talked about not having override, like that you would pursue an idea and not allow it to be the one sole idea that you are considering, even though it was first. Um, and so oftentimes I think that it comes out of there that it's it's going to be a bit of the audience, it's going to be a bit of the author, it's going to be out of the process, that it's going to be something that is... So to, to come back around to my initial response, I think that the answer is a bit of yes, um, because I think that that's part of positioning the place uh, where it is, because also then you as a designer are bringing in uh, even just a, a, a at least a third voice uh, in there. Um, 
that you're interpreting it into your worldview um, um, with the with with like the skill of trying to be sensitive to all of these different perspectives as much as you can. Right, Ian. Is anybody else that wants to add to that? Yeah, I'd just like to kind of add, like support that idea that it, you know it's really about finding that balance, treading that line of of taking it all in, and and I think that's where I get really excited by designing immersive spaces um, because you get to kind of, in some ways, everybody's in the same space because everybody is on the stage and in the audience and and in the control position at the same time, but also you're acknowledging that everybody has a slightly different perspective all the time. Yeah, nice. Great. Well, I think we're going to need to wrap it up now. Um, so maybe we could just have a round of applause for our panel and our actors. So nice to have that audience clapping sound. <laughs> So thank you everybody for your amazing questions and exciting discussion points. Um, and I wanna thank everybody who's been involved in this project. Those of you that are in the audience, on stage, online, the audience that is online that we can't see necessarily, but we know that you're there. Thank you for your questions and for being with us today. I really want to thank um, Monique, who is behind the scenes there with Tessa, who have been working very, very hard to make all the tech run really, really smoothly for you today. So I really appreciate that working out for us again. So this is our final eco-sonography reading group for this year. So we'll see how we go for next year and if there'll be another one, um, maybe back by popular demand. Um, but yeah, you can you feel free to go and have a look at our Ecosonography website and all the information will be there, including a recording of this session. So that's all from us today. Thanks so much for joining us. See you later. Thank you again for tuning in to this month's Ecosonography Reading Group session, our last one for 2021. A massive thank you to every single one of our guest panelists and readers who have generously donated their time, energy, and contributions to our discussions. Each and every one of them are making incredible contributions to the live performance community, and we strongly encourage you to look into the work that they are doing and the type of projects they are involved in to stay up to date and potentially get involved as well. If you'd like to learn more about Ecosonography and any of the future projects we may be hosting and any potential reading groups that we'll have in the new year, please stay up to date with the Ecosonography website as this will be the main platform where we'll be announcing any of those projects. Thank you again and we hope that you enjoy.